Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Well, the big news this week was the final settlement of the Los Angeles Unified Teacher Strike. The school board voted for a 6% pay raise over two years, and then with uh, more drama and a less predictable vote, urged the legislature to put an 8- to 10-month moratorium on approval of new charter schools in L.A. Unified. Yeah, Lewis, there was also some big news out of Washington, D.C., where the partial government shutdown ended and Congress finally got back to work. You know, the Democrats in the House for the first time in eight years are now control of education policy, and you were there. You were in D.C. and spoke with Representative Bobby Scott from Virginia. He chairs now that House Education and Labor Committee. Yes, we'll get to that a bit later, but first let's talk about Los Angeles. The district did reach a resolution of the strike, but it came with dire warnings from the County Office of Education that the district doesn't have the money to meet the terms of the grant, and the district could go insolvent if it doesn't do some serious budget cutting in the future. So, John, just explain that. How can a district approve an agreement like that when they clearly don't have the money to implement it. Well, let's say they had to approve an agreement because teachers were on strike for seven days. There was intense and pressure to to compromise. But from the county's perspective, they look at the budget for this year and then two years out. So they're looking at three years. And what they're saying is that the district had a lot of money and is going to be using that money to pay for raises and hire some teachers. But on the third year out, is where it runs into trouble. And it says that these current rate of spending, the district could be a half a billion dollars uh, in the red. And of course, with LA, we always talk about billions as opposed to most districts, but that's a significant chunk of change. And they're saying they just can't afford to pay for many of the teachers that are scheduled to be hired two years from now. Is it the teachers or these extra staff, the counselors and librarians, nurses, and so on? All of the above, yes. And the teachers. And teachers as well. Additional teachers because they're reducing class sizes, and so that produces a need for more teachers. And is this dependent on the state coming through with more money and potentially the voters approving some changes in Prop 13 and so on? These these ambitious plans to raise billions of dollars more for well, education. As- as an administrator told me once, you know, in the third year of the budget, they put down miracle will happen here. And I think there is the assumption that their district may approve a parcel tax and that the state will approve something for additional revenue in the ballot in 2020. But, Lewis, it's not explicit, and that's one of the questions. The district, though, doesn't have three years to come up with a plan, according to the county they have to come up with something by mid-March in six weeks. Yes, in 45 days it should show how you're going to be able to balance the budget in that third year and keep a, what the state requires as a reserve moving ahead. I do have to note that the county's report to the district came with a, I don't know, kind of a threat saying that the state could impose a special advisor that could actually rescind some of the things that were agreed to. That's true. The county could order a special advisor to come in and work with the district. That's because the district's already been on the watch list for financial problems. So the county could, and it may. The other issue, Lewis, is that you know some of this money may eat up the money that's reserved under the funding formula for dealing specifically with low income and foster youth and English learners. 
the state gets, as we pointed out, a billion dollars for this purpose under the funding formula. It's unclear how much of that money will be used up by the contract, and the district must justify that use of the money for that purpose as well. And the county superintendent did tell the district they would need to look at that and perhaps change their local control and accountability plan. That's exactly right. And that's important for the public to know because you create a local control and accountability plan, and then that's supposed to be your path for the next three years, and a contract comes along and potentially changes that by hundreds of millions of dollars. So you owe the public an explanation as well. It's not necessarily an easy thing to do. The LCAP, as it's called, went through a whole process, input from community and so on. Well, they have to redo all of that. Perhaps so. And I think many of the groups that worked out these commitments with the district will want to know that. They want to know it clearly what's going on. Okay, well, just let's shift to the other big issue that was part of the agreement. The school board voted to ask the state to put a moratorium on charter school growth in the district. Huge issue in the strike, ongoing issue. Uh, Los Angeles Unified has more charter schools than any district in the country. So now this goes to the legislature to deal with. Yes, it does, and I think there's uncertainty what happens now. The resolution itself just asked for a moratorium of what they said eight to ten months for Los Angeles Unified, but we know that there are other districts out there with large numbers of charters, Oakland, which is in financial difficulties, and West Contra Costa Unified, which is also has a lot of charters. The teachers have already said, oh, wait a minute, include us on this moratorium. So I think a lot of people are getting out their crystal balls to try to predict, anticipate what the legislature might do. And we asked Steve Barr, who is a veteran charter school founder. He started one of the early charter schools, the Green Dot Charter School in Los Angeles Unified, now grown to 21 schools in the district. We have Steve Barr on the line, and we asked him if he foresaw the number of charter schools growing so dramatically in Los Angeles Unified. I thought it would catch on fast, and then we would all join forces with the school district to help solve the, the problems citywide, but but the back and forth, the adult dysfunction, uh, the pendulum, political pendulum swings, the inability of the charter movement to, you know, olive branch the unions and vice versa, it, you know, has led us to this huge buildup. Steve, let me ask you, as one of the early founders of charter schools in the district, what do you think of this current proposal and really kind of a remarkable resolution, unexpected resolution that this Board of Education approved to put a moratorium on charter expansion in the district? Where do you come down on that? Well, I mean, of course, I think it's bad for kids. The problem is when you spend your days in Watson and Boyle Heights and in South Central, the demand and the need is so great. It would be okay if the districts were actually, you know, paying attention and, and mocking and using all the R&D we've created, the research and development we've created with these good schools, that would be a, a good reason to slow down charter growth. But since they keep this kind of resistant pose here and try to do, like, you know, light versions of, of the work, the demand, unfortunately, is there. I mean, people are going to demand what's best for their kids. And that's a big difference from when I first started Green Dot to now is just that there are good schools in every neighborhood now and people want them. But what about the, the argument that it really is like biting into the budgets of the district and that that is one reason that the district is is suffering financially? Only one reason, but a significant one. You know, I think the demographic change, people aren't having children, people have moved away from the city. But, you know, the school district is not, and public education isn't so that we can maintain our budgets, it's to serve families. And so 
when those kids move and the dollars follow them, that money's still going into Los Angeles public schools. They just happen to not be with the school district, which seems to be slow to the punch on figuring out how to serve these kids. From where we sit, uh, this 5-1 decision by the school board to call on Sacramento to impose a moratorium seems significant. I don't think we could have predicted that. Uh, certainly a year ago, we had a charter-backed majority on the board, and now it votes only one board member against this. Uh, were you surprised? Do you see that that as significant at all? Well, I think it's predictable in the sense that this is the problem with not focusing and not having leadership to, on both sides of the issue, charter schools and union folks who don't look. Yeah, there's probably 80% of the stuff we agree on. So since we don't, we battle back and forth. The pendulum swings back and forth, and this is probably a time for the charter movement to look itself in the mirror. What do you think the state or the legislature is going to do? I mean, this is not an easy thing, whether there should be legislation just for L.A. unified. Would it apply to all different districts? I mean, there's an issue. Should it be, okay, if you get up to 20% of the enrollment, there should be some kind of moratorium or cap? But do you see any prospect that this legislature will respond to this? What I'm hoping happens is that our new governor and the Democratic majority, which can't blame Trump on any of this stuff, they've got to solve this problem themselves, which is the problem's not at the, at the charter schools versus the, the school district. It's in Sacramento, and where's our money? And why, how do we get more money? We're talking with Steve Barr, one of the early pioneers of charter schools in Los Angeles. So, Steve, you are now proposing to create another charter school, and this one would serve foster youth, right? It still drives me crazy when I go to one of my schools or any school and I meet, I'll somehow gravitate towards a foster kid, and, and I'm familiar with that because I was in and out of foster care when I was a child for a brief time. And, and you know, we start to reach the kid and the light starts going on, and I'll come back a month or two later and I'll check in on that kid and they're gone. How can you stop that migration? How can you, how can you create a, a place where kids you know, feel ownership their caregivers feel ownership and they're treated well. What I'm trying to create is a, not unlike when I first started first Green Dot School, you know, a place where an example, and that's what charters at their best are, you know, can you try something new and different for a problem that's not being solved and create a proof point that we can then learn from. And so my idea is to create a five-day-a-week residence for kids, and then, you know, so they have an extended day and they learn life skills um, beyond the classroom day, and then, then it, uh, on weekends they return home and um, we can, if we can keep those kids for five, six, seven years, we can do some great things with them. If we just ignore it and talk at it, then, uh, then we'll continue to have those same problems we've been having. So this is the kind of example with, that creators of charter schools had hoped that this would be a source of innovation and you could show over the districts how this works for this special population. So this might be the kind of school that you would say, you know, certainly shouldn't be caught up in a moratorium. That's a great point. And so what will end up happening is we're going in front of the county, and the county is now dealing with, you know, the, 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 all of the political uh, dysfunction is now going upwards. And so, you know, the, the staff at the county is now freaked out about, God, is this going to mean we're going to have to grant more charters? And where does that put us? How does that put us? And one of the board members said, well, why don't you just take it to a school district that will deny you, and then we can vote on you as a, an appeal. I'm like, like <laughs> it shouldn't be this hard. Not, this one went from... Uh, Department of Children Services because I don't understand why we're not coming to you and begging you to do this because this is we all know this is what's needed. You know, kids are just being pushed around because they're always looking for that one school that'll help them and they can't find them. That was Steve Barr, founder of the Green Dot Public Schools Charter Network in Los Angeles. John, 
Steve seems to think the legislature might pass a weakened version of the resolution that the L.A. board asked. Uh, what do you think? Well, it's hard to say. There is no sponsor of a bill at this point. We don't know where it's going to go. But let's point out Tony Thurman, the new state superintendent of public instruction, did run on a charter pause, and he reiterated that position in a statement to us last week. Governor Newsom hasn't taken any position on it, so I guess we'll have to wait and see. This week, Lewis, you were in Washington, D.C. for a seminar by the Education Writers Association, which is one of our favorite organizations, and you met with Representative Bobby Scott from Virginia. He's the new chairman of the House Education and Labor Committee. Yes, John, that's one of the tangible outcomes of the House of Representatives now being in Democratic hands. Scott was first elected to Congress in 1992. He was actually the first African-American representative from Virginia since Reconstruction. Amazing. He was also one of the four principal co-authors of the Every Student Succeeds Act. And he said that one of his first orders of business will be to look at whether states are doing enough to address the achievement gap as required by the new law. The first order of business is to review what we're doing with ESSA how it's going, what's been approved. We gave a lot of flexibility to localities, but we did not give any flexibility on the requirement that they have, uh, that they ascertain achievement gaps and then have a credible plan to do something about it. They've got flexibility on how they do that. There's no flexibility on the fact that they have to have to do it. The high school diploma has to be a quality diploma, that the credentials, you can have whatever credentials you ha- you want. But if you, whatever they are, ought to be enough to get you into a state college without remediation. We want to see how we're doing on that. I believe some of the um, state plans that have been submitted are not as aggressive as we anticipated. And we have to make sure that um, all of the plans are doing something about it. Of course, in education jargonese, ESSA is the Every Student Succeeds Act. Yes, and he seems to be advocating for a more activist role in the uh, ESSA than I think Congress originally intended in the compromise. So it will be interesting. He may not persuade the Senate to go along in terms of jumping back in the law and forcing states to re-examine whether or not they're meeting the objectives that that we all recognize are important. Well, speaking of the Senate, there's now a push. The Republicans in the Senate are trying to push more quickly passage of the or reauthorization of the Higher Education Act major piece of unfinished business in Congress. Uh, the act governs student loans, $150 billion of student financial aid, and other aspects of higher ed. Congress has not been able to get this thing through. And uh, there's some uh, feeling, or Republicans want to get this thing done, they say, by the end of this year, in part because Lamar Alexander, the head of the committee in the Senate that is is in charge of education, will be retiring in a couple of years. They want to get it done. But Representative Scott was dubious that this could be done. In terms of higher education, I understand the um, uh, Senator Alexander staff suggested we could have a complete reauthorization of the Higher Education Act by the end of the year. That's possible, but unfortunately we got starting positions in the House. Uh, it was obviously going in different directions. And um, that process took 
just about the full two years of the last Congress, we never closed much of the gap. The Senate had the same two years, and I don't know what not aware of what they were doing, but if we can get it done and by the end of the year, that would be a great accomplishment. It has to be a bipartisan. We could pass a partisan bill in the House. You can't pass a partisan bill in the Senate. And a Democratic bill is obviously not going to be signed by the President. So we have to work together, and hopefully we can come together and um, make some progress. And on that note, that wraps it up for this week in California education. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Shuka Kalatari. Thank you, Shuka. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra. We also have music from Ed Source's Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. 